is where we are. Chapter 3, getting into the Word, walking through the book. Pretty exciting as you're turning there. And if you don't have a Bible, you can lift your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. And uh, pretty exciting. Be praying. 4 p.m. on Sundays, we've got a team going out to Palina, about an hour away out uh, in the country. Uh, and we're reaching out to that region. And so if you have an interest of being a part of that outreach ministry, come talk to me. You know, we leave here at about uh, 2.30 on Sundays to head that direction. It's a really sweet time. People are excited that we're out there. I just created a Calvary Polina Facebook page. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can get on there and and keep up with the prayer and and, uh, being a part of that. So be praying with us. And uh, that means that the pulse is now moved to Saturdays, the first and third Saturday of the month. So there will be no pulse tonight. <laughs> that was an announcement, forgive me. Um, <laughs> Revelation chapter 3, Lord, here we come to your word, a scripture that uh, is very convicting, Lord. We would be so haughty to think that it's not a word for us today a word for me personally and each one of us individually, that we're too good to be this church in, this, in these series of letters. And Lord, I think, in fact, we very much are this church. And so as we sang today about the resurrected King resurrecting us, do that work right now Lord, in every person's heart in this place, just let your spirit be with them. Lord, those that are believers, let that indwelling spirit, let him just bring great conviction, grant repentance, Lord. Come upon us afresh for great life and power. Speak to us today and give us the ears to hear. As Revelation keeps saying, he who has ears to hear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the story is told that one balmy day in the South Pacific, a Navy ship espied smoke coming from one of three huts in an uncharted island. Upon arriving at the shore, the Navy men were met by a shipwreck survivor who said, I'm so glad you're here. I've been alone on this island for more than five years. The captain, shocked, replied, Wow, if you're alone on this island, how come there are three huts? The survivor said, Oh, well, I live in one, and I go to church in another. The captain said, What about the third hut? The survivor answered with an embittered face, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) Sad but true. Well, there are many churches to choose from in Prineville. We pray that every one of them come to the letters to the seven churches and let the Holy Spirit examine them. As we prayed with humility that he would correct us, that he would encourage us, and that he would grant us repentance to walk in the ways of these healthy churches. 
These are literal historical churches that were in Asia Minor. They were anywhere from 60 miles apart to 30 miles apart in a roundabout map. They could be, uh, you know, it's a sort of a Pony Express of the day as these letters would go out. We've looked at Ephesus and Sardis and Pergamos and Thyatira. And now we're at the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis. At the time that Jesus spoke the words in this letter to John the Revelator, the ancient city of Sardis had kind of become a has-been. It had already seen its best days and was starting to decline. And yet in its declension, it was still a very wealthy city. It was a hub where many major roads came through. And it was known to be connected to money, easy money, immoral money. The first coinage in world history came out of Sardis. In fact, as you do the study, we can thank uh, Sardis for our modern money system. Paper or coin, rather than trading pelts and beef jerky, you know, which I think we should kind of go back to, but, you know, whatever. Sardis was a city known for its softness. It was known for its luxury. It had a well-deserved reputation for apathy for laziness, and for immorality. One of the images that you see shows a large stately temple. Uh, Actually, a couple of them are seen in ruins. The big one was to the mother goddess Cybele, or if you're Italian, Cybele. Okay, I don't know, but good way to remember it, I guess. Main columns of this temple were 60 feet tall and 6 feet in diameter. And of course, like so many of these pagan gods and goddesses, they were honored with sexual immorality, uh, with paganism, with impurity. The combination of easy money and loose morality with pagan worship made the people of Sardis notoriously, famously soft and pleasure loving. They were known for decadence, William Ramsey writes of Sardis, Sardis was a relic of the period of barbaric warfare, which lived on rather in ancient prestige rather than on its suitability to present conditions. So they were living in the past. You know, they were Uncle Rico on Napoleon Dynamite, you know, just if I could just go back, you know, just, you know. I'd win the championship or whatever it was, you know, or, or we used to be such good warriors back in the barbaric time of war. Johnson writes, indeed, no city of Asia at that period showed such a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. One pastor writes, it's fascinating to see a church mirroring the history and culture of the city where it is located. So living on in the past and yet getting the beer belly, you know, getting the chub around the neckline, the double, triple chin after the football experience is over, you know, living in the dream of the past rather than what could be happening in my life today. 
It's interesting as we compare this church with other churches that Jesus wrote to, this church receives no real word of commendation, no real applause from Jesus. The other churches that even got correction, Jesus would give them just some great encouragement, even though they may have some sin and struggle in their life. But with Sardis, along with Laodicea, there's not a whole lot of encouragement or congratulations, really a single word of praise. Chuck Swindoll says the church in Sardis was a morgue with a steeple. And you know, as I read that, and as I'm just examining me and our church, that it just hit home. We inherited a steeple this year. We got a tall one. We've got, I think, one of the most beautiful steeples I've ever seen. Kind of a gothic look. I don't know. Look forward to when Clay has to climb up there and, you know, do maintenance on it. That's going to be a lot of fun. But, but we don't want to be a morgue with a steeple. And we're going to see why the, the word morgue would be used as Jesus goes on to correct this church. Vance Havner says, says she had it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. Are we a church of show with not a lot of substance, with not much in stock? Well, let's look at what Jesus has to say and why that might be really a fitting word for Sardis as well as maybe even Prineville today. And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, and there's a lot to be said on angel, and we've talked about it in the past. We're not You can listen to those teachings, but Jesus says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So let's pull this apart real quick because it's actually, it helps us keep our eyes on Jesus. Okay. I was listening today. I don't know much about sports. Uh, But I heard a little about figure skating this week, that the way those incredible athletes uh, land, you know, the triple axles or whatever, is that right before they take off and go airborne, they pick a spot on the ground, and every time they do a rotation, they try to catch that spot with their eyes, so that when it's time to land, they nail the landing. And it's such a good example for us in studying Revelation, because especially when we get to chapter 6 through 19, you know, we're going to be doing, you know, there's just some whirlwinds going on of what all John the Revelator might be seeing. And whenever we're kind of, what, what could, what, just look for that spot. Look for Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Don't forget, it's all about Jesus here. Okay. And even with the letters to the churches, what, what about Jesus? Let's train our eyes to see, well, here he is. And he's the one who we're told in chapter one has two different things in his hands or rather uh, one group in his hands and he's in the midst of something else. And, and here it says he has the seven spirits of God. Little, little bit of trying to figure out what the seven spirits of God might mean for me in my studying, the best explanation I come to is Isaiah 11 It's actually a prophecy of Jesus and the spirit who will rest upon him. So we've got God, the son and God, the spirit. 
And this text says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So we know that's Jesus. He came from the line of Jesse, the line of David. He's the son of David. That's Jesus, the Messiah. And then the prophecy was that at his baptism, we know this is when this occurred, the spirit of the Lord came and rest upon him. And interesting, there's, there's seven things that describe the spirit here. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So perhaps uh, what is being referenced here is that this son, Jesus, the one who's writing the letter, has the spirit and this sevenfold ministry of the spirit is at work and able to be at work in the church in Sardis. Now, whether or not that's exactly what that interpretation means, uh, I think that's the best one out of a couple others that just seem like, okay, I'm not sure. Okay, but, uh, but here we can at least know we certainly can pray today for this spirit to be given and poured out upon us today by the one who has him, okay? And so even today, Lord, in our midst, pour out the spirit of the Lord upon us. Pour out the spirit of wisdom for us and understanding that we could know how we are uh, a morgue with a steeple, perhaps, or counsel us as you're going to in just a little bit with might. Give us knowledge and give us fear of the Lord that hates all evil. Amen? All right. Well, we also see that he has the seven stars. And, you know, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible so far. Who, what are the seven spirits? Well, here's seven fold spirits that can be translated. Here's seven ministries of the spirit in Isaiah 11. What about the seven stars? Easy to get confused with the Bible, isn't it? Sometimes you're like, seven stars in his hand. Is this something from like My Little Pony or something? And unicorns and rainbows and stars in hand. Well, you know, and hold on. The scripture has shown what these things are. And in chapter one, towards the end, we see that the seven stars are these seven angels or messengers, maybe pastors of these churches. And, uh, and so he, he's holding the leadership or he's holding the guardians in his hand. Read of it in Revelation 1, 4 and 1, 16. But here's what he says, who has the spirit and the angels. I know your works. That you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And so he's an all-knowing God. Revelation chapter 1 says he walks in the midst of the churches. And he knows what's going on. He knows the works and the lack thereof. He knows the works in Calvary Primeville. He knows all that we've been through the last six months in Acquiring a building and working hard together and having great joy and laboring and using gifts. And he knows all that's happened in our church in the last, uh, going on six years with missions movements and going to Nepal and praying regularly for the unreached people groups. He, he knows what's going on in our homes and in our marriages. He knows what's going on in our parenting. He knows what's going on in our discipleship and our home groups and our core. He knows everything that's going on. He reads our Facebook page, okay? You know, he knows. He's like, oh, another post, another selfie from Rory. That's great. Good job. It's selfie Sunday again. Well done. Oh, it's selfie Monday again. It's selfie Saturday. Okay, well, uh, yeah, he's like, we get a little narcissistic as he knows what's going on in our church. 
He knows our works. And what does he say about our works? He says, you've got a name that you're alive. And right away reading it, you might be like, oh, yes, we do. Oh, yes. Thank you, Lord, for noticing. We've got a name that we're alive. Hate it when the word but comes in. But you are dead. The name of life speaks of reputation. You've got a reputation in the community, maybe even in the world. Some who interpret this, and I used to maybe hold tightly to this, and now I'm like, I just can't get there in just a simple reading of this. Doesn't mean there's not application, but these seven churches could be like a great panoramic picture of church history and everything from the first century church to the persecuted church to the compromising church under Constantine, you know, to the Roman Catholic church. Uh, some great exhortation to that church in Thyatira. Maybe continual sacrifice, some things you could draw from that. Maybe there's application there, but there's also, for us, application. But, but then we have, interestingly, the next stage in church history, which is the Protestant Reformation and the coming back to the scriptures and letting people have the scriptures in their hands and wonderful evangelistic uh, movements that happened out of the Protestant Reformation, gospel-centered preaching, the reformers, Huss and uh, Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and uh, the Wesley, you know, I just, it went on for a number of years, just incredible men who planted churches and churches that are alive today with reputations. And certainly I don't think that that's what the text says. You know, it's the Protestant Reformation, most certainly. No, but we could learn from that. It's just interesting that the name that this church has is the Greek word anama. Anama, which I've been told is where we get our word anominations. Okay, I don't know. I, I really want to do some research on that. But some application there. As our denominations started out so strong with great life, maybe a reputation of being alive, and just dwindle it down to us here at Calvary Prineville. What was our reputation? What's our past reputation? Calvary Chapel, a wonderful heritage in the last 40, 50 years of revival down in Orange County, hippies getting saved and surfers getting saved and coming into the church barefooted in their swimsuit with sand all over, you know, and, and, but revival's happening and church planting movements and getting to the word of God and teaching it and uh, just having place for the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and being evangelists, such a great, rich heritage, thankful for Chuck Smith and the work that's happened through him. But there could be an exhortation, though, even within the Calvary Chapel movement that, hey, you have a reputation, a category is what the Greek word speaks of, of life, but you're dead. You are useless, ineffective, literally translated a dead body. The ESV says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Vance Havner says, we're not to get the impression that Sardis was a defunct affair with the building a wreck and the members scattered and the pastor ready to resign. It was a busy church with meeting every night, committees galore, wheels within wheels, promotion and publicity, something going on all the time. It had a reputation of being alive, wide awake, going on. 
It was refreshing two weeks ago to go with Aaron and Stephanie to the Oregon Calvary Pastors and Leaders Conference and to just spend time. We'd spend uh, about two to two and a half hours every morning just waiting on the Lord. And there were probably 130 people or so just for, for two and a half hours worshiping and waiting on the Lord and praying for our churches and for our state. We had a wonderful evening, the final evening there, where we just believed as we cried out for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was baptized upon us afresh for boldness and courage and just fresh manifestations of His Spirit coming to the church so that the churches could be edified and so that the gospel could be displayed in this world. Such an incredible time of just, just letting the Lord just move in our midst as churches in this state, you know, that we call themselves Calvaries. Wonderful time with Aaron and Stephanie is Aaron being an elder in our church for many years and just being with him and his wife and not my wife, just praying in that way. But realizing that in the past few years, uh, Calvary's just been kind of admonished and, and uh, even called heretics for believing that the Holy Spirit and the gifts and even the miraculous gifts are for today. And it just caused Calvary's to say, you know what? Since the beginning, our, you know, in the 70s, whenever, whatever that's worth, you know, we've always had a value for the continual gifts of the Holy Spirit. But we don't give a place for those to be used and moved within our body. And so we've kind of become practical cessationists. And so it's time, it's kind of an awakening, like either let's just say we're cessationists or let's give place and walk in faith and obedience to the scripture and be governed by the word, how the Holy Spirit and his sevenfold ministry can be moved in our midst. And we were just all reminded of that a week ago, two weeks ago, what was it? Two weeks ago, I guess, um, that we want to continue with the work of the Holy Spirit, the life giving spirit, the spirit who Jesus says after he ascends to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit and it would be as if torrents of living water were being poured out of our hearts. We believe we see that happened in the day of Pentecost. We just see it, it happens ever since through church history as his people give place for the Holy Spirit. And I think too that there's such application for us. We have a name that we're alive. Calvary Crook County, Calvary Prineville. We've got an active Facebook page. We've, we've been in the newspaper many times for mission movements in Nepal. Mission movements know of us and are thankful for us and, and talk about us. Like, praise the Lord for that. There's a name that there's life going on here. Uh, we've got a live stream now. We're getting out there in the world. You know, we've got a YouTube channel. Like, wow, these are things that the modern world would say there's life happening there. But I think that if you get past maybe that shell and the Holy Spirit does an MRI and a CAT scan on us, I mean, if not dead, a heartbeat away from death. We have a reputation. There's committees and meetings and stuff going on, but is there spiritual life? Christ-exalting life. Gospel-centered 
obedience to the word? Or do you come and you hear and you leave and there's no change? And there's exhortation from leadership and pastors and backed up by the Bible pleadings with you. And there's no repentance. There's no allowing the Holy Spirit to move in your life. The things to be worked out that we read of in the scripture. You're still living life your way with no love for Jesus. There's a great saying, love Jesus and do what you want. Well, you can't do this and you can't do that. You know what? Boil it down to love Jesus. Because when you love Jesus, all that you want will be him. All that you want will be what he wants. Love Jesus. But I fear in our church, there's a lot of doing what you want without the love of Jesus. And it's bringing death. Perhaps it's brought death. Perhaps it shows that you've just always been dead. Or we've always been dead. John Wesley says, As for reputation, though it be a glorious instrument of advancing our master's service, yeah, there's a better than that. A clean heart, a single eye, and a soul full of God. Man, if we can just trade anything that's gotten our name out there for people that just love Jesus Let's trade it. Let's trade it in. Wesley went on to say, that's a fair exchange. If by the loss of reputation, we can purchase even the lowest degree of purity of heart. In 2014, Ton Rainier, who was the president of Lifeway Resources, Lifeway Christian Resources, wrote a very famous book, and it comes from an article a blog article titled, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Uh, he, he wrote a, a list of several fatal causes that put once alive, vibrant churches in the grave. And let's just listen to what Tom Rainier has to say. Treating the past as the hero. Refusing to adopt or excuse me, adapt to the needs of the present community. Moving the focus of the budget inward. Allowing the great commission to become the great omission. Letting the church become preference driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. Seeing the tenure of the pastors decreasing. Failing to have regular corporate prayer. Having no clear purpose or vision. And obsessing over the facilities. The author of the Christ-centered exposition commentary said, I'd like to build on Rainier's excellent points with these simple observations. 
Many a church begins with a man, reaches out with a mission, becomes a movement, but ends up a mon in the, forgive me, but ends up a monument or in the mortuary. And I appreciate what Brian Broderson used to say. I took it to heart. He says, we need to beware of a road because it can soon become a rut that leads to rot. He went on to say, this is a polite way of saying many a church begins with life but ends in death. It has a glorious past, but a glorious past is all it has. And so Sardis is subjected to a divine MRI, a divine CAT scan or x-ray. And the diagnosis is far worse than any external superficial examination could have ever revealed. And you can picture this like it's a movie, one of our today movies where someone goes in, you know, probably from one of our zombie apocalypse movies or shows that's going on. And, and they go, they're like, oh, I've got the cold sweats, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really pale, you know, I'm, I'm growing sharp teeth or something. I don't know what, you know, they're like, well, let's get you to the doctor. And they go in they're like, this is really weird. You know, what's going on? And they put them in the MRI machine and the doctor spills his cup of coffee and goes, he dead. <laughs> Like, it's worse than we thought. But his toe's wiggling. Everything is saying he's dead. No heartbeat, no brain activity, activity. Dead. And that's the church in Sardis. It's now a zombie church. A church of the living dead. There are living bodies walking around with dead souls inside. And it's something that only God notices because he sees the inward heart. He sees spiritually, and, and I, I say this today, we pray this over our church, but as I'm preaching, I feel the Lord encouraging me for our church. Just thankful for that. But last night at the Pulse, we spent time crying out for individuals in our church. And so maybe the Lord, you would just maybe even close your eyes and just let the Lord Touch your heart and minister to your heart. Let the Lord do a spiritual just examination of you. He's the great physician. And maybe he would say to you today, there's death. There's no pulse. There's no heartbeat. You've flatlined in your walk with him. A slight pun when referring to the church, but Sardis was a dead body. Another list that's a compliment to Rainier's analysis in this list is another article titled, When Does My Church Need Revival? And think about that word revival for a second. Just fresh life or the shock paddles being applied. Revive. Come to life again. When does my church need revival? The article written by Stephen Manley tells six telltale signs of a church standing at death's door. The church is plagued with disagreements. The preaching is ineffective. Few can remember when a person was last saved. God's supernatural power is never seen. God is not praised regularly. And no one is being called into God's work. 
The Bible is all about bringing the dead to life again. It's the gospel. We who are spiritually dead, he has made alive. It's a work of the gospel. It's a work of the cross. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 1 tells us, he made alive. The necrosis was spreading for Sardis and it was endangering the whole body. But the situation, the situation wasn't salvaging the past. It was remembering and moving forward. Look at what Jesus says. In verse 2, he brings the remedy. It's in a sense, the shock paddles are being placed on Sardis. And if you would let him today by the spirit, place the shock paddles on your spirit and soul today, where he says, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I've not found your works perfect before God. This is so amazing that the Lord is so gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love And he could have just as easily been like, you're dead, you're done. But it says he graciously moves forward. The love that he has is utterly amazing. Not only has he redeemed this church, he again and again goes out of his way to rescue her from her self-inflicted wounds. Even when, you know, if you've seen the dramas from the emergency rooms, ER or whatever, you know, and it seems that the time has passed and call it, they say, you know, and the body's obviously dead. And the dramas always have that one nurse or that one doctor that's like, no, you know, not on my watch, you know, and and he goes on for like another 10 minutes and his arm, you know, and, you know, and comes back to life again. That's Jesus. You know, everyone else would have given up, but he's like, just give me five more minutes of CPR. It's been said the condition is critical, but not yet terminal. Not as long as he is present. And he's present. And so he says, he injects a little bit of be watchful in the patient. (laughs) Be watchful. Be vigilant. I, I love that word watchful, and I love how the word uses it a lot in the Bible, and even in the epistles. It's vigilant, and it means be open eyed. Open up your eyes, church. Be on alert. Be ready. Stay awake. Be alive. It's interesting that this term is used, and he's going to say it a little bit later in this little section, this be watchful or watch. And it's so great to know the context of who this was written to because Sardis was this city that was positioned up on this high plateau. Uh, it's you know, similar to all of our mesas around here, or Masada, if you're familiar with that in Israel. Uh, this city was built with three giant cliffs all around it. So no one could scale these cliffs to attack them. And then they had a high mountain uh, on their fourth side that protected them. And so it was a famous city for being impregnable, impregnable, something like that, right? You're following me, okay. Uh, And so with that, they grew comfortable. 
You know, we've got our security system in place. You know, we've, we've put our little warning sign outside of our lawn that says this city protected by, you know, first alert or whatever it is, you know, and, and we've like, we're comfortable. And it's so interesting because with this fame of being impregnable, someone look it up for me. Okay. There's got to be another word. I'm like, what's a different word? Um, Unpregnable. Okay. Impenetrable. Penetrable. Okay. Let's move on, shall we? Oh, thank you. Got a high school education, just in case you're wondering. Lots of welding classes those final three years. Okay. So interesting because as invading armies would come to Sardis, the, the most famous being uh, King Cyrus or the Emperor Cyrus, uh, he would come and he would get to these cliffs all around the city and he'd be like, man, uh, man, we're not going to be able to advance in our military campaign. There's no way we're going to get up there. And, and so he gave some key generals the task of finding a way up to conquer this uh, city of Sardis. And so one general specifically, he was just, he was the one that was watching, watching Sardis. And he noticed some soldiers hanging out around the edge of the cliff. And one uh, day, a soldier dropped his helmet and it clanked and it clunked all the way to the bottom of this, I think it's 300 foot cliff. And so the, so the uh, Cyrus's soldier just kind of watched. And when evening came, he noticed a man at the bottom of the cliff grabbing a helmet and disappearing. And so it caused him to know that there's some way down, there's some secret way. And so at night, they searched and they found this secret pathway up to the top. And it was there that Cyrus jumped the city while no one was watching. There were no watchmen on guard. They were all comfortable. And so the city was taken over. And you would think in the history of your nation that if you totally got whooped by not having your guards out on post watching and make sure that trail is cut off so no one, you know. 200 years later, another army came and invaded and they beat the city of Sardis in the same fashion. How's it go? Fool me once, shame on me. No, fool me. Fool me. If you're fooling me, don't fool me. Okay. You guys all know. I think I'm quoting George W. Bush on that word when he butchered it. But, you know, they got fooled twice is the moral of the story. They weren't watchful. And so Jesus, just knowing the culture, knowing their history, he uses something that's kind of like, ooh, oh, Lord, you brought that up again, you know, that we got conquered twice for not being watchful. But there's great application to it, right? Jesus will say so many times, even in Revelation 16, 15, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The Olivet Discourse, when speaking of Jesus' coming in Matthew 24, 42, this will be one of our scripture readings that, that maybe it's just a few verses here, if you'll bear with me. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, and so this reminds us of what Jesus said in our text today, I will come upon you as a thief, right? Assuredly, I say to you, uh, uh, forgive me, 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Do I need to even go into like a story of what that would look like? You guys have imaginations, right? 
Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, insert yawn noise, my master delays his coming. And begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's almost like Sardis was in mind in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus spoke this. In Mark's Gospel thirteen thirty-five. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So watch, be vigilant, open your eyes, post the guard and let the Holy Spirit bring application for that in your life. Go to church, be in fellowship, be involved in body life. Man the gate at your home, keep wickedness out, keep holiness and righteousness in, keep Jesus the center, be a family of prayer, meditate on the gospel, preach the gospel to your wife, preach the gospel to your kids, preach the gospel every day to yourself. Jesus says, strengthen the things which remain, Sardis. The things that maybe even are ready to die. Strengthen those things. Establish them. Whatever they are, whatever you've got going right now for Jesus in your life, make it secure. Strengthen it. I love when David, King David, was greatly distressed When all the people spoke of stoning him, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Even today, let the Lord strengthen you. Strengthen the things that remain. For I have not found your works perfect before the Lord. One translation, I think it was NIV, says, I have not found your works complete before the Lord. And I hope that I'm right in saying this, but I just kept feeling as I was praying about this text today, I felt like the Lord was saying, I'm not done with you yet. All right. I haven't found your works complete. I'm done with you. I'm not done with you yet. The story or the chronicle of your life with Christ isn't done yet. And this is for you. If you're listening to this message today, it's for you. Strengthen the things which remain. I'm not done with you yet. Hebrews chapter 11, it's awesome the way that it ends because after listening to all the heroes of the faith, it says, but you know what? God's not, God didn't like finish the story without adding the New Testament church in this story. Like there's still more to be done. Verse three, remember therefore how you've received and heard 
Hold fast and repent. So there's a similar remedy to that as the Ephesian church, and it was remember and repent. Remember and repent. Remember what you heard. Remember the gospel. Remember your first love. Remember the former days. And repent of your laziness. Repent of your, the luxurious living that's leading you to backsliding, that's leading you to death. Remember how you heard the gospel. Oftentimes the Bible rem, reminds us of that. One of my favorite is in 2 Timothy 3.12. Actually, if you look at 2 Timothy 3.14 is where it says, but you must continue, it's like halfway down there, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. So go back to first love, guys. Go back to the first time the gospel was preached and you know the Holy Spirit hit home. Go back to discipleship in your life. Go back to first fruits, first love relationship. Go back to the time when the preaching of the word would find its mark on your heart and move you to conform your life to it. Remember who you used to listen to that led you this way, and you were assured in them. If I may, remember your pastors. Remember who's loved you. Remember who's been laying their life down. Remember your elders. Remember your mentors spiritually. And you know what? I have mentors that have fallen into sin, committed adultery, left their wives, they're gone. Even in their repentance after that, they, you know, many of them are just scraps of men that aren't even being used by the Lord. Some have been used mightily, many have not. But even though I, some of the guys I remember, I remember those days with them. I remember where there was no doubt the Holy Spirit was moving. People were getting saved. Remember from whom you've learned and been assured of. Keep those things, right? I, I butchered that passage, even though it's one of my favorites. Continue in the things that you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Ultimately, any pastor, preacher, commentary, radio host, whatever, hopefully if you've learned from them, they're going to fail you. You can just go right to the source of theirs, to Jesus, who will never forsake you or fail you. If you won't watch, I'll come on you as a thief. That's that story of the, you know, coming on him. You will not know what hour I come upon you. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. Interesting, Winston Churchill said to Britain in the early days of World War II, I must drop one word of caution. For next to cowardice and treachery, overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness is the worst of wartime crimes. Lord, have we become overconfident? Have we neglected and become slothful? Let's have the worship team come up. You have a few names, verse 4, even in Sardis, who've not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they're worthy.
Some people still walking in purity. Some people still walking in cleanliness. There's a few names. Jesus knows them. They're going to walk with him in white. In just a little bit, we see that uh, Jesus will clothe the overcomers in white. That's in verse 5. We know that the white comes from him. The garments of purity come from him. I love Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together that though your sins are scarlet, they'll be made as white as snow. The Lord wants to revitalize our church. He wants to make it, and praise the Lord through the gospel, even though there may only be a few names who've not soiled their garments in this culture of Sardis, he can make it as if everyone has never soiled their garments. That's the story of the gospel. And the story of the gospel is that we get to walk with him. We have the promise that he will not blot out our names from the book of life. Much to say about the book of life. We'll get to it later on in Revelation, certainly by chapter 20. Confusing verse, though. Blotting out name, book of life. And just in my praying and reading through it and reading passages, don't make that verse say what it's not saying. Okay? And I had in mind, you know, uh, I just pictured Titus for some reason, who's such a, a tender little boy. And when he's sinned, he just weeps and grieves and asks for, you know, he's just sorry. And he's learning about forgiveness now. He's, he loves forgiving people and vocalizing that. But I just pictured a Titus who... I share with him his sin. You don't do that. No. And Titus, with his tenderness, saying something like, are you going to leave me? Are you going to kick me out of the house? Are you going to make me move out? And, and I would answer the question in a roundabout way by saying, never have to leave and move out. Now, there's a lot of other stuff going on there in parenting and this and that, but son, you'll never have to leave and move out. Because in that moment, he's walking in repentance. He's walking in my arm and I can say that for certain. And I think Jesus is, he's just saying, and I like NIV and ESV, I'll never blot you out of the book of life. Well, what if um, someone was once saved, you know, they went to a Billy Graham crusade and then, you know, they raised their hand and they went up and then, uh, I'll never blot you out of, like, because where we're at here is you're overcoming, you're conquering, you're clothed in white, the gospel is applied to your life, you're, man, like, I'll never blot you out of the book of life, much to say of the book of life. You want to be in it. Okay? End of the day. Well, I'm living in this and I'm dabbling in this and I've kind of given myself over that. That's not good. You want to be in it. You want to be in it. And so today we can remember that. We can repent. And we can even ask, write my name in the Lamb's book of life, Lord. Keep my name in the Lamb's book of life. There's some sort of magic marker or eraser or something. Like, keep that away. 
I want to be in the book of life. Amen. The, the context of that is that in the ancient times, when someone died, they would be removed from the city register. You're dead. Here comes the eraser. Up, 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 up. Raise up. Come to life. Revive. Get the eraser away. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to close with aggressive repentance today. We're going to close with aggressive crying out to God. We were in this yard last night for an hour crying out for ourselves and for our church and for people by name in this church that, man, if not dead, on the brink, man, there's like a pulse rarely bleeping on the bleeper. Aggressive repentance, aggressive crying out for life. Will you stand with me today? Hear the cry of our church, Lord. We hear you. We hear you, Lord. Take out the wax. Take out, take off the earmuffs, Lord. We hear you. We're reading it. The letter to the church in Sardis, Lord. We don't want to be Sardis. I fear we're close, Lord. I fear we're close. Barb McCown just spoke out over the prayer meeting last night. The word distraction. People in our church are distracted and it's robbing them of life. Are you distracted today? Have you soiled your garments? Repent today. Let him put just clothes of purity on you, making you as white as snow. I believe that in the last hour or whatever it's been that you know, you know, do not ignore him. Do not shrug your shoulders at him. Don't turn your back on him. You know, there's a weak pulse at best in your life. And today the call is there for you by a gracious, loving redeemer who holds the Holy Spirit and gives him out. And today we cry out, Holy Spirit, come upon us, revive us, bring life. Shock us to life again, Lord. And we are going to open up the front for a place of response for those of us that know we're creeping on the edge of death, if not dead already. And he's going to give us life today. I believe he's going to give our church life. He's going to revive us. Aggressive repentance today, friends. Aggressive response. If the word of God has hit home today, join me up front. It's just as much for me as it is for you. Let's cry out to him. Come up front if that's you.